trying to think what would spice up a mid-July worship uh, experience. Uh, because, you know, it's hot and people are wilting. And I almost immediately thought of David. David's story in Scripture is riveting. Uh, and so for the next three Sundays, today and the next two, we're going to take a look at chapters of David's life and where else to begin except with a psalm attributed to David's writing. So listen to a portion of Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so I shall be saved from my enemies. For you deliver a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. It is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lights up my darkness. By you I can crush a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The promise of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock besides our God, the God who girded me with strength and made my way safe? He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand has supported me, and your help has made me great." You gave me a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. The word of the Lord. One day there was a little girl in a classroom at school when it was time for art. She was six years old, and she always sat in the back of the class. That she was that day as well, drawing. The teacher said that most days, this particular little girl paid little attention to what was going on, but during this particular art lesson, she hung on every word. And then with laser focus, she began drawing and coloring intently. The teacher was fascinated, so she went back to the girl and said, what are you drawing? And the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the girl said, they will in a moment. <laughs> if you turn to the Bible, to get a picture of what God looks like. One of the first places we can look to get a full portrait of God is this whole narrative of God's relationship with David. The David story is the most extensive narration we have in the Bible. We know more about David than any other person in Scripture. One danger in these days of the spiritual but not religious is that we can imagine our faith can be carefully nurtured, something like a hothouse orchid, kept safely away from the sullying of the world or our foibles or any organized church. We often come to think that the goal of our faith and the goal of our spirituality is to filter out all the imperfections in us, in the world, certainly in other people, and then commune with the holy in some sterile, pristine environment. So that silent retreats seem better than sitting through a strategy meeting on how to help homeless youth. 
a morning walking in the woods can appear more appealing than sitting in church one Sunday and frankly finding the prayers and the sermon and the music just doesn't cut it that day. You find none of this in David's story. For daily, for David, dealing with God means dealing with everything that we deal with in life, danger and parents and enemies and friends and lovers and children's and wives and pride and humiliation and rejection and siblings and sickness and death and sexuality and war and justice and fear and peace. To say nothing of whatever was the equivalent in David's time of clogged plumbing, troublesome emails, grocery lists and client demands, filling worried days and crowded calendars. All of this, all of it, makes up David's life with God. We don't get with David a moral exemplar. We certainly don't get a saint. We don't get a great spiritual beacon. We get a life lived for, with, and occasionally running from God. It's not a perfect, it's not a pristine faith, but it's an authentic faith. Before dawn on January 10th, 1966, Sam Bowers, who was then the Imperial Wizard of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, drove out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi to the house of Vernon Dahmer. While Dahmer and his family slept, Klansmen doused the house with gasoline and set it ablaze, destroying the house and the adjacent grocery store. Dahmer's 10-year-old daughter was seriously injured in the fire. Dahmer himself lived a few hours and then died the next afternoon. His crime? That he allowed black people to pay poll taxes at his grocery store. In August 1998, Sam Bowers was finally convicted after four mistrials of the vicious murder committed more than three decades ago. One of the individuals present in the courthouse for Bowers' 1998 trial was the Reverend Will Campbell. I've talked about Will Campbell before. Before his death a couple years ago, Will Campbell was a maverick Baptist preacher, a civil rights leader. He lived a remarkable and faithful life. When the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was established, Campbell was the only white person in the room. Later, he bravely walked with black students who first integrated Central High in Little Rock as they made their way through an angry mob. When he was chaplain of the University of Mississippi, he had known Vernon Dahmer, and they'd worked closely together. Campbell was assumed to be at the murder trial to grieve the long-ago death of his friend. Courtroom observers, though, were shocked one day to see Campbell being embraced not just by Ellie Dahmer, Vernon's widow, but also by the defendant, Klansman Sam Bowers. When he saw him, Bowers just gave Campbell a huge hug. When one of the reporters covering the trial asked Campbell how he could possibly be so friendly, both with the victim and with that vicious murderer, the ever-salty-tongued Campbell replied, because, damn it, I'm a Christian. Not unsullied. Not pristine. Not careful. Not perfect. But authentic. Faith in God for us can never be a museum piece or an heirloom 
or a hothouse flower. It is a lived-in relationship. One commentator notes about David, as an instance of humanity in himself, David frankly isn't much. He has little wisdom to pass on to us of how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent. He was an unfaithful husband. From a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain who did have a talent for poetry. But David's importance isn't in his morality or in his military prowess, but in his, ex his experience of and his witness to God. Every event in his life was a confrontation with and an engagement with God. There's a lot of encouragement for you and me embedded deep in David's life. If God can use David, what about us? Instructions for living a life, poet Mary Oliver once wrote, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. So when two blind men were sitting by the roadside one day when Jesus walked by, their appeal to Jesus is repeated many times in the Gospels. It was, Lord, have mercy. Son of David, have mercy upon us. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. They were appealing to Jesus because they recognized in Jesus an extension of the exuberant, full-out spirit of their ancestor David. That designation isn't genealogy. It's about God. But why David? There are several strands, but the, one of the most prominent is David's earthiness. David is so emphatically human. David fighting, David praying, David loving, David sinning. David is conditioned by the morals and assumptions of his brutal culture, just like we are conditioned by the morals and assumptions of ours. There's David angry. There's David devious. Oh, there's David generous. Look, David is dancing. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that God cannot and will not use in David's life, and by the way, in our life, to work God's salvation and grace into our lives. Henry James once criticized American religion as little more than cathedrals with mild social conscience. The late novelist John Updike has one of his characters observe, Westerners have lost whole octaves of passion. We no longer have capacity for the full range of ex expression, either on the high end or the low end of life's experiences. Third world women can still make an inhuman, piercing, grieving noise right from the floor of their souls. We struggle to regain that capacity. David's earthly life in the midst of a flawed, devoted faith shows us the way. In Psalm 18, this Psalm of David that we read, David expresses his wholehearted, nothing held back at all love of God. For David, God is rock, fortress, deliverer, shield, horn, stronghold. God is praised, God is worshiped, God is adored, God is followed, God will guide, protect, humble. And God will prepare David for every chapter of his life. In a rush 
of full-throated praise, David writes, It is you, O God, who light my lamp. The Lord my God lights up my darkness. By you I can crush a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. In all David's life, from birth to death, whenever David's sentences began and ended with God, David was celebrated and worthy. He was the victor. He was the shining one. He was the king. But we know with David there were other times. And when there were other times in David's life when he forgot to begin and end with God, and he thought it was him doing it all, that the light was fake, and the darkness pervasive. Then it was his own soul that got crushed. And his attempt to leap a wall was nothing more than a leap into utter folly and destruction. But God always found David and found a way to bring David back to God's self. And David always found his way back to praise. You have given me the shield of your salvation, David wrote. And your right hand has supported me. Your help has made me great. You provided me a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. We hear echoes of David's poetry throughout century after century after century. In the mid-18th century, as John Wesley began his ministry in an England that seemed overwhelmed by social problems, the gin trade had led to huge problems with alcoholism. The Industrial Revolution had laid waste to the rural English countryside, resulting in a vast influx of people into the cities, more than they could handle. Child labor was the scourge of the land. There were vast social dislocation and chaos. Things were overwhelming. Faced with that world, John Wesley countered these problems not first with a new social program for human betterment, but rather with a revival, which responded to the problems of the day by an overwhelming affirmation of God's grace. The Wesley brothers responded to their problems with exuberant praise of God. Among the great legacies of the Wesleyan revival are some of the most beloved hymns, O for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, which ends, Till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. That is the leap we are asked to make into the arms of a trusting God. That praise that trust, that exuberance. It's a leap. What would it take for us to have a faith that took leaps? Not strolling through God's goodness like a tourist. Not loitering around the edge of safety in God's presence. Not wanting to commit too much. But an audacious, often awkward, sometimes misplaced, but usually deeply trusting life centered on who God is and what God does. Honestly, most of the time, you and I, I don't think we know how to do this. This way of living 
doesn't come naturally to us. David knew no other way to live his life than this. Fred Buechner has observed, to see what there was about David that made Israel adore him like no other king she ever had, as good a place to look as any, is the account on how he captured Jerusalem and moved in the ark. Jerusalem was a major plum for the new young king, a hill town considered untakeable. Finally taking it, David's first move was to rename it City of David. The second move was a brilliant maneuver, giving his victory the stamp of divine approval by trotting out the holy box of acacia wood overlaid with gold known as the ark that contained who's, who knows what, it was as close as Israel ever got officially to a representation of God in space, the God who dwelled in eternity. When finally they made it into town, he set up a big tent to keep out the weather and had refreshments passed out on the house. And just so no one would forget who was picking up the tab, David himself did most of the praying and took up the offering afterwards. So far as this, nothing, this was nothing that a good public relations rep couldn't have dreamed up. But the next thing was something else again. David stripped down naked and began to dance. Maybe it started out as just another Madison Avenue ploy, but not for long. It was quickly apparent to everyone who was there that they were not just in the presence of David the king, but in the presence of God Almighty. How they cut loose David and Yahweh whirling around before the ark in such a passion that they caught fire from each other and blazed up in a single flame of such magnificence. David had feet of clay like the rest of us, if not more so. Self-serving, deceitful, lustful, vain. But on the basis of that dance alone, you can see why it was David more than anyone else that Israel lost her heart to. And why when Jesus came riding into Nazareth on that mule a thousand years later, it was as the son of David that they hailed him. The streets of our cities and the pews of our churches are occupied these days with emaciated and plastic men and women. There are too many limp souls. The American poet R.P. Blackmer wrote that decades ago. In such a shallow world that we're frankly invited into every day, the image of David leaping over the wall by God's grace and power should rivet our attention. David in his vigor, in his wholeheartedness, in his God-heartedness, coming to a stone wall and without hesitation, leaping over the wall and continuing on his way by God's grace and power, running toward Goliath, running from Saul, pursuing God, meeting Jonathan, rounding up stray sheep, getting lost on his own stray paths, and then finding his way back to God. David, running, leaping, certainly not strolling, never loitering, fully involved in his exuberant life and his exuberant faith. Instructions for your life. Pay attention. Be astonished. 
tell about it. That's what David knows. That's what David lives. And God? God is at the center of all of it. 